Alpenberg's Lulu uh, is probably one of the most admired of all 20th century operas. And yet until the 1970s, it was really only known in a truncated three-act form. The composer had died before he could finish the work, and although he left musical sketches for the last act, his widow Elaine was reluctant to allow any composer other than her husband's teacher, Arnold Schoenberg, to complete this last work, and Schoenberg declined the invitation. Berg had written his own libretto based upon a pair of linked plays by the German playwright Frank Wedekind. Earth Spirit and Pandora's Box tell the story of the bewitching Lulu who brings ruin and death to all the men who fall for her until she herself is murdered in London's East End by Jack the Ripper. She is perhaps the mirror in which all men see their desires and not so much immoral in any conventional sense as amoral or indeed even beyond the notion of morality. The Viennese critic Karl Krauss suggested that she is a woman who became the destroyer of all because she, everyone destroyed her. Berg shaped Earth Spirit into the first two acts of his libretto, culminating in the shooting of Dr. Schoen, Lulu's protector, while the final two acts condense Pandora's box in which Lulu escapes from prison with the aid and help of the lesbian Countess Geschwitz and makes her way to London where she's murdered. At the heart of the opera is a short film, of course, that depicts Lulu's escape from jail with the help of Geschwitz, and this is the turning point of the music drama and signals the start of a kind of mirror image of the action that we have already seen, albeit in much darker colours. Berg, as many of us know, was fascinated by symmetry and by palindromes, and Lulu is no exception, with the whole work conceived as a palindrome or mirror, so that Lulu's high life in the first acts is mirrored by her squalid circumstances in the end. And this is underlined by Lulu's husbands in Act 1 and 2 being played by the same singers as her clients when she's working as a prostitute in Whitechapel. Indeed, the whole story can be seen as a palindrome, the rise and fall of Lulu. It's written for a large cast with over 24 roles, and Berg indicated that a number of singers should take more than one role. So, for example, Lulu's three husbands return as her clients when she's a prostitute. One performer each appears as the doctor and the professor, as the painter and the negro, and as Dr. Schoen and Jack the Ripper. As the critic Theodore Adorno observed, the opera Lulu is one of those works that reveal the extent of its quality the longer and more deeply one immerses oneself in it. Well, we're going to immerse ourselves, I'm afraid, not long and deeply, but certainly for 45 minutes. And to help us do that, we're joined by three guests. Um, uh, Maria Kradniak, who is covering the role of Lulu, and with her, Chris Hopkins, a member of the English National Opera Music Staff. Elaine Tyler-Moore is also, Hall is also with us. She's the staff producer on William Kentry's production of Lulu, which you can see on the screen, or images which you can see on the screen behind me. But first, will you welcome Gavin Plumley, a writer with a particular interest in the music of Altman Berg. Please welcome Gavin Plumley. <laughs> Gavin, can we sense why Vedekin's plays would have appealed to Berg? Well, of course, we know a lot about Berg as a musician, as a sort of voracious musician, but he was also a keen theatre-goer um, as a teenager in his, in his 20s in Vienna. And Vienna is a bit like Berg, often renowned for being a musical city, but it is primarily a theatrical city. The subscriptions for the Burgtheater or the Theater in der Josefstadt, the Volkstheater, these are absolutely prized by the Viennese. And Berg, living right in the center of Vienna as a, as a kid, um, would have gone to the theatre all the time, and he knew these, uh, th this amazing flourishing of fantasy literature well. 
Um, he attended Karl Krauss's private uh, production of Pandora's Box in 1905 and had already read um, Earth Spirit by the time that came along. So he really was a sort of avid theatre-goer. Was it an obvious thing that he chose to write his own libretto? Well, by the time he got to um, Lulu, which is almost, well, over 20 years after he had seen that production, Vedekind himself was dead, so that was out of, uh, that was not an option to turn to him. And Berg's compositional process, his way of creating operas, which he had fashioned uh, in writing Wozzeck, which had been premiered in 1925, was so intense that I can't imagine anyone actually being able to work with him. Um, it's, um, it's, it's quite furtive in many ways, the way that Berg writes. Um, and also he had quite a job because he had to fashion this libretto out of two plays. And, and as we'll talk about later, I'm sure, but the, the compositional process was such that he actually wrote libretto and score simultaneously. Is there anything within his own personal circumstances that made him perhaps choose Lulu as this to write? Well, um, a voracious theatre-goer, a voracious uh, musician, a voracious womaniser, um, Alban Berg. Um, and um, uh, yes, he may have been sort of pondering his own um, attractions, sexual attractions, through this story. Um, he had recently embarked on an affair with Franz Werfel, um, Alma Mahler's husband, uh, husband at the time's sister-in-law, Hannah Fuchs, um, to whom he dedicated the lyric suite, his string quartet. Um, there were other affairs too. And certainly that kind of, the bourgeois world in which Berg lived and operated was also a liberal one in which sexual freedom was very much part and parcel. Well, you only need to look at Alma Mahler to know that. Um, and so there may be a sort of reflection of his own world in, in this, the demi-monde, as it were, of Lulu. But in, in the lyric suite, of course, he writes Hannah Fuchs absolutely into the music. Does something similar happen here in Lulu? Yeah, well, it, he's obsessed with codes um, and musical codes. You've mentioned the palindromes, you've mentioned the symmetry. And Hannah Fuchs, um, HF, when rendered in, uh, through German nom uh, musical nomenclature, give us a B natural and an F, a tritone. Always great for a composer. Um, and she is also in Lulu, the final chord of Act Three of Lulu, um, in fact, features both Alban Berg's initials A and B flat and Hannah Fuchs' um, B natural and F. Um, we know also that Berg was fascinated by numbers. Um, is there a sense in which numbers too work their way through this piece? People have spent an enormous amount of time working out how Berg used his sort of number codes. Um, uh, Berg felt that he was the number 23. Um, is there any reason why? Yeah, there, there's a very, very clear reason, which is that if we take A being 1, B being 2, C being 3, etc., that the, the, the sum of the letters in Berg's surname, B obviously being 2, um, uh, come to 23. And when he then did that sum again with his own, uh, with his full baptismal name, which was Alban Murray Johannesberg, he could then extrapolate the sums of those individual words. So 23 in the, for the surname then became five, and he could add all of those together as well, and that would also equal 23. Um, it, 23 uh, the 23rd day of the month was the first time he had, had an asthma attack, and Berg suffered appallingly from asthma. And it, it's 
I mean, truly fatalistic this, but it seems that he actually didn't die on Christmas Eve, which is the date given um, for his death, but on the 23rd, and it was only by early morning on Christmas Eve that the doctor could come and actually pronounce him dead. So, so he really did have an obsession with this and used this number to dictate the lengths of phrases, metronome markings, all sorts of things within his scores. Lulu is of such complexity, unfortunately, that to actually try and perceive all the ways that the 23 and, in fact, Hannah's 10 could be used through this score has, has so far eluded um, the musicologists, but I'm sure if any of you would like to um, take a score and start decoding, um, please go ahead. <laughs> I've, I've, I've suggested that the drama should be seen as one of Berg's favourite palindromes. Is the music also a palindrome? Yes, I mean, particularly in that central interlude, um, it, it, it very much acts as a, as a palindrome. And when you're watching that film this evening, um, the, the Incredible Projections, do listen out for this amazing piano arpeggio right in the middle, which is the centre point, as it were, of that interlude, of that palindrome, and indeed of the entire drama. The, there are recurrent musical motifs from, uh, in Act 3 which are taken from Act 1, but it does, it's not totally, you know, Beg didn't turn the entire school around and then, you know, he'd written the second, uh, second half of Act 2 and all of Act 3, otherwise we would have had a completed opera. Um, but um, but there, is a, there is definitely a mirror image that is sort of, as it were, placed down the middle of that arpeggio. And do we know how he set about composing this piece? Well, before he put any notes on the page, before he really started dealing with the, with the, 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 the text itself, um, Berg undertook an enormous amount of pre-compositional activity. In fact, the pre-compositional activity with Lulu was first applied to another play, um, Gerhard Hauptmann's Und Pippa Tanzt, which he wanted to adapt as an opera. Um, unfortunately, Hauptmann wanted far too much in royalties, so Berg um, said, that, no, uh, uh, thank you, but no thank you, I'll, I'll turn to Wedekind's Lulu plays. Um, and this pre-compositional work um, looked at the basic 12-note, 12 12-tone 12 material um, and the various rows. Berg, of course, hugely influenced, well, taught by Schoenberg and still influenced long after their official sort of pedagogical relationship had finished, was um, enthralled by the idea of 12-tone uh, music, which had emerged in um, the early 20s in Schoenberg's five piano pieces, Opus 23. And... Unlike Schoenberg, however, Berg took a rather liberal view of this system. So Schoenberg and Webern uh, were rather doctrinaire and said that one tone row must um, dictate the musical content of any work. Well, Berg said, well, I agree with that to an extent, but what I can do is I can extrapolate certain things from these rows, certain chords, harmonies, subsidiary rows. And that pre-compositional work was done before he started. So he had, as it were the musical DNA of Lulu prepared, and then he began work on the score. You, you said earlier that he's setting te writing text and setting, uh, setting text and writing music at the same sort of time. Yeah. yeah. This is fairly unusual, isn't it? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I very much doing it on the hop. I mean, the other composer who does that, actually towards the end of his career, is Janacek, who was adapting um, uh, the Macropolis case uh, uh, play, and indeed from the House of the Dead, as he went along. So, but it's, I mean, it's, it's, 
it's high-end stuff. Um, you know, you've really got to know your material well in order to be doing that. And clearly, Berg was absolutely sort of saturated in this world. In, in some performances of this work, uh, I think perhaps in this performance, but certainly in others I've heard, there was one at Lyman. This sounds unmistakably like the opera that Mahler never wrote. <laughs> and there is clearly another debt there, isn't there, to the much-admired Mahler by, by both all, by Schoenberg and, and Berg too. Yeah, I, I think that the real... The, the, a lot of emphasis is obviously placed on the teaching-pupil relationship between Schoenberg and Berg, but Berg was... Uh, worshipped Mahler, called him his god, um, and in fact Berg was outside the sanatorium where Mahler died in 1911 and was absolutely stricken by it, wore black for weeks, and, um, and the three orchestral pieces are very much written as a sort of in memoriam to Mahler, and that rich, uh, sort of hyper-subjective sound world of Mahler is very much in evidence in Lulu, not least in the music associated with Dr. Schoen, mm. which then returns in Act Three, and... Um, Yes, it's it's you know it's played very high on the lower strings of uh, uh, of the string instruments. That this wonderful horn writing, um, and harmonically, it's very it is very akin to Mahler. It also shows how far Mahler had gone in atonal terms as well by the end of his life, um, and it and it shows that despite all this seemingly cold music that the twelve uh, the uh, the second Viennese school was dealing with. Um, that actually, this is very heart on sleeve. It, it, there is there is such a thin line between Mahler's Ninth Symphony and Berg's music that you know one, not twelve tone and one twelve tone. So it's it's that that we have to keep that in mind, I suppose. D does Berg entirely jettison the traditional vocal forms and uh, of, of opera? I mean, aria, duet, ensemble, and so forth. Or does he also adapt them in ways? that are uh, a compromise in the same way as he kind of adapts his own way out of Schoenberg's 12-tone row system? Well, he's sort of a both a, both a post-Wagnerian and a pre-Wagnerian composer at the same time, because it, Lulu is through-composed, but it within this kind of meta-structure, there are sort of micro-structures, so and they're, they're marked in the score, so we'll get Canzonetta here, we'll get Sonata here, we'll get Rondo here, we'll get, you know, the lead de Lulu, quite clearly demarcated as an aria, um, the, the, the various verses of these arias. And they, they, they sort of combine so that, again, Berg is marshalling his musical material, and in some ways, those structures inform the, the drama itself, the, the sonata, literally has two subjects like a sonata form would have, but the subjects are, in fact, Lulu and Dr. Schoen duking it out in the sonata form. So it sort of helps us through it. But, they are subsumed into this through, through composed form. Mm. So it's a sort of big, it's a mixture of a number opera and a Wagnerian kind of um, endless melody kind of work. Um, how far had he got when he died on the 23rd of December? Um, he had completed acts one and two, um, totally uh, scored, and had begun the work of scoring act three, um, a big chunk at the beginning, and he had already created the Lulu Suite, which included a lot of the music that would return at the end of the opera. Of the short score, Berg worked, um, like many composers writing operas, in this sort of um, aide memoir kind of form where vocal line accompaniment, not necessarily for piano, but for various lines, expanding and contracting as he needed the detail. That had been completed apart from 87 bars. 
Um, and, and that's where he left it when he died of a, well, blood poisoning from an abscess of a wasp sting. That's one of the reasons I feel such kinship with Bear, because I'm also allergic to wasps. Um. Why did Schoenberg not take up the offer by Helena the Widow to complete the piece? I think, there, well, there are two. There's one very basic intellectual reason, which is that Schoenberg's method was not Berg's method. Um, and to get inside the head of Berg, um, and particularly when you had very strong thoughts about how to compose, would have been very difficult for Schoenberg. I think the other reason was probably jealousy, because why would Schoenberg, who was struggling to complete Moses Nehren, want to complete someone else's opera? Um, um, and he had and had never really had the success on stage that Berg, of course, had had with Wozzeck. And I think there must be some of that. And I think also Webern had been sort of approached, but of course he had no experience of the theatre at all. So that, that was where that road ended, really. The, the final puzzle is why Helena should have, as it were, uh, left the opera as a kind of torso rather than asked anyone else to complete it until somebody in the 1970s, Frederick Chen, does actually complete it. I mean, what, what are her motives in all of this? Quite hard to um, work her out in a general way. I mean, of course, she, I think she knew uh, just how unfaithful her husband had been um, during their married life. Um, and of course, Lulu was one of those works which sort of pointed to that. Um, uh, I don't know, spite, um, also circumstance. By the time that she was really dealing with this torso um, and what to do with it, um, there was no likelihood of it being performed in Germany and Austria anyway. Um, its premiere took place in Zurich. Um, and in fact, the publication of the vocal score of Act Three was, was stopped. Um, so I think maybe she felt that there had to be a line drawn under it and in fact to sort of go back there was to return to a world that had, had come to an end. But we should be pleased that eventually it's completed because yeah. it's such an extraordinary work complete. Yeah, and, and, and of course, given the fact that this is a, is a symmetrical work, mm. um, and the wonderful quote from Karl Krauss um, in 1905, he said it's um, uh, a men's world um, rashly taking revenge from its, uh, for its own guilt. Absolutely amazing idea. And that is only really revealed when you do see Schoen and Alva and the painter returning yeah. um, at the end to wreak havoc on this creature that they have created and now they must destroy. Gabby Palmley, thank you very much. Thank Stay with much. us because I'm sure we should come back to you. Thank you. <laughs> Our next guests are the soprano, Maria Kravniak, who is covering the role of Lulu in this production, and Chris Hopkins, who's a member of the English National Opera Music staff. Would you welcome them both, please? Maria, can I just ask you, as you've worked on this opera, who have you decided that Lulu is? What do you mm -hmm. think you've mm -hmm. come to a conclusion about her? Um, well, of course, uh, I, I sympathise with Lulu. Uh, it's quite hard to, to portray a character with whom you have no sympathy. Um, Lulu is, is a woman who has... I, I, I like the quote that, that, I, I, that you um, used earlier, um, the Karl Krauss, she becomes destroyer of all because she's been destroyed by all. She has been abused her whole life and she's found ways to survive. Um, and she lives every moment um, um, to, keep, to keep going. 
I think. Well, one way of, of thinking her is that she refuses to acknowledge her right to be a victim, that she wants to constantly fight that role that has been foisted on her by the men. It makes her a very unusual heroine in operatic terms. <laughs> um, definitely. Uh, she... She... Um, well, she's full of... She's very resourceful, uh, definitely, and she, um, she doesn't back down down easily. I think we see, I mean, by the end, of course, she, she really is destroyed. But in the rest of the opera, I think there are really two moments only where she, in which she's really backed into a corner. And that's where we see a little bit of her, of the real essence of her. Because um, as you, you um, mentioned earlier, um, she often is a reflection of, of the men or, or, or the woman who, um, who are in love with her. So, and you see that in her music. Um, she, throughout the opera, has <clears throat> mirrors the music of, of, the, of her lovers. So do when Dr. Schoen sings, she copies Dr. Schoen's music. When the acrobat sings, she copies the acrobat's music all the way through. Um, but in the moments in which she's backed in her corner, um, one of which is, is um, in her aria, she has her own music and she... Um, you, you see a little bit of who she actually is. Does she care <clears throat> for any of the men and the woman who are obsessed <laughs> with her? Um, she cares for Dr. Schoen. Um, I think somewhat she cares for Shigoch as well um, in, a, in a sort of strange, uh, warped, paternal way. Um, it's a very dysfunctional and disturbing relationship, but I think she does. But Dr. Schoen, she has... Uh, she does love him. And do you think by the end of the evening, by the end of the opera, we are invited to condemn Lulu? Or should we be left in a state of complete bafflement? I think that this... I, I, I don't think it's fair to condemn Lulu. And I think that this, this opera and the play is slightly... Um, are, they are social commentary on perhaps mm. to force us to look at what society and men um, expect of women. Um, you know, that women should be what a man wants them to be. And um, I think that, there's, that we're forced to look at this and say, is this, is this right? What are the challenges for the singer? <laughs> um, just about every challenge imaginable for the singer. <laughs> um, this role is extreme in every sense. Um, uh, it's, it's extremely long. Lulu sings almost the entire way through the opera, as you'll see tonight. Um, she gets very, very short breaks. Um, and um, the, the range is extreme, uh, the vocal range um, and the technical range. Um, the music is extreme. Um, the story is extreme. Um, but um, it's a very exciting role to play and extremely rewarding. Tell us what you're going to sing. What about um, it? We are going to uh, perform the lead, the, um, Lulu's aria. So this takes place um, in in the second act, um, and this is one of these moments that I that I mentioned in which Lulu is backed into the corner. Doctor Shun has finally, um, she's finally married Doctor Shun um, after he has sort of passed her off to several other men. She's finally been. Um, cornered into marrying her. Um, but at this point, he's become um, so overwhelmingly jealous that, that Lulu continues to have affairs with other people, you know, sort of in their house. Um, and 
Dr. Shun pulls out a gun and says, you need to kill yourself. You're too shameful. Um, he's too cowardly to do it himself. And so he makes a very poor judgment call of putting the gun in her hand. But um, anyway, but this, this is obviously, this is the moment he's got the gun pointed on her and he's accusing her of, of really shaming him so much. And um, she, her response is, um, is very direct and... Uh, um, it's quite interesting, uh, just quickly, do I have time to just... Mm. Uh, the, the aria is made up of five sentences, each of which has sort of an antecedent and consequent, consequent phrase, sort of like that sentence. Again, the, the, she was destroyed by all because she... Or the destroyer of all because she was destroyed by all. So in this, in this aria, you'll hear that, for example, you have betrayed me with all of your closest friends. How dare you use me for your own betrayal? So you see how the sentence has, uses the same words in two parts. And Berg wrote um, a tone row for the first half of the sentence, and then the second half is an inversion of that tone row. So you can hear, you'll hear the sort of music, and this is particularly obvious in that sentence I just said, because there's some coloratura that goes up, and then you'll hear the reverse mm. of it, sort of in the opposite direction. You wear the appetite. The microphone <laughs> Yeah, surely.
Maria, thank you very much indeed. Um, Chris Hopkins, um, did you know the opera well uh, when you started uh, knowing you were going to work on it? Um, no, only by reputation, I guess. Um, I'd worked on some of Votsek before, so I sort of had a, a vague inkling of what was coming. Um, uh, uh, there was a sort of slightly terrifying moment when I picked up the vocal score from the library and it comes in two volumes, such as the size of it, and the, the, the second volume is Act 3, and I happened to have the Votsek vocal score on my stand and it was exactly the same width uh, just for <laughs> Act 3 of, of Lulu as for Votsek. So th there was something, um, there's something slightly terrifying at the beginning of it, but um, I mean it's a challenge and I think it's terrifying for everyone, so in a way it's, um, it's sort of nice to be in the same boat. Does it, because of its extraordinary individuality, does mm. it require from you, as you're beginning to think about working on it and working with the singers, a, a different approach? Um, only in the sense of uh, that you have to be very specific about how you're learning it. Um, and I tend to go through with most of my scores when I'm learning them and, and put little post-its on pages that need work and try and get an overall um, picture as I go through but with this it was more a case of taking it bit by bit and there's a very definite limit of about 20 minutes I'd say in which you can do useful work on a section for me without needing a sort of bit of downtime so it was it was a case of sort of working out how you're going to tackle it um, and doing that very specifically in small chunks. And, and does the structure of the music that Gavin has talked about emerge um, uh, with hard work, or does it, is it, as you get yourself into this world musically, does it become clearer? It does become clearer. Um, uh, I mean, there's, there's so much in it, I still feel like I'm just scratching the surface, you know, and, you, and, and also I'm playing in the pit every night, which is wonderful. It means you start hearing different things as well from the orchestra and from the stage. And um, there is, the structure is fantastic, uh, fantastically interesting to sort of un uncover um, as you go. And the little structures within the, the, the palindromic elements, the how he manipulates the tone rows and all that is very interesting from an analytical point of view. That's not to say that you need to know that when you watch the show, I don't think. Mm. Um, you know, there's, that's more for Berg or for anyone that's studying it um, uh, uh, for that interest. But um, it's certainly fascinating on how many layers it works, both as a, uh, just as a, a, a first-time buyer, as it were, to the show, and, and, as, uh, and 12 years later, you know, having <laughs> done it many times. <laughs> Uh, one of the ways in which Berg helps us is to give his principal characters, as we've really been talking about, these very clear musical identities. We, yeah. we know who these people are because they have uh, a, a, a role laid out in the orchestra. Does he moderate and change those characterizations in the orchestra? I mean, is he doing what, what I might expect any uh, person who came after Wagner to do, uh, constantly commenting on change within the way he's writing the music for the characters? Yes, I mean, the score is endlessly fascinating in terms of how he manipulates both the sound of the orchestra and the various themes. Um, as you mentioned earlier, the, Lulu's the most interesting in the way that she sort of moulds herself to the other characters. Um, some are very obvious, I mean the acrobats music is a lot of, a lot of sort of clustery things. Um, Alva's is sort of very romantic and Schoen, Schoen is very specific and Shigol who got his asthma built into the fabric of his lines as well. Um, uh, I mean, they're, they're very clearly defined 
as characters, both in the small scale and the large scale. So when Schoen comes back as Jack the Ripper, that's very obviously Schoen's music and, and so on. Um, uh, sorry, I sort of lost Gavin my Gavin was saying when you were talking before that that yeah. is the most chilling moment yes. in the opera. Is it for you too? Yeah, it's terrifying. It's terrifying. Um, and uh, it comes after the sort of madness of the, the other two clients, the, the silent the silence in the in the in the first um and then uh, the sort of madness of who was the painter comes back as the client and then this chilling sort of stillness about jack the ripper that you know leads to the ultimate downfall chris hopkins thank you very much indeed thank you. Our last guest is Elaine Tyler Hall, who's one of the staff directors here at English National Opera, and she's been working with the artist William Kentridge on this production of Rulu. Elaine Tyler Hall. <laughs> Elaine, when did you begin work on this Lulu? Um, we started rehearsing uh, the very beginning of October, um, and it was something like five weeks and two days until the first night. So, um, in terms of this piece, that's an incredibly short time. I think Chris will um, agree with me because you've heard from everyone else how difficult this piece is. And my hat goes off to Maria and all the cast and all the covers because the music itself is so complicated, the text is really hard. And on top of that, people like me ask them to throw themselves around the stage and do things in light where they can't see the floor and, you know, really hard things. So it's like dividing their brain between all the, the rigour of the music and the text and the physicality of what's required of them. So it... <laughs> well done to you. Elaine, this is made wonderfully more complex by the extraordinary nature of William Kentridge's designs, isn't it? What did you feel when you first saw what he'd made for the opera? Perhaps I've just been in the opera world for too long, so and some things don't really surprise me anymore. And in a way, that's what's so wonderful about opera, the art form itself, is that there is no limit to what one can do with a piece. You know, the, the, the piece is the concrete thing, and productions are ephemeral and can be different, and really, you know, contrasting ideas for the same piece. So that's what's wonderful about it. So I suppose I wasn't surprised in any way by what William did with it. Um, but it's extraordinarily amazing that it's very clearly an artist is looking at this piece um, rather than a stage director. You know, initially, you know, I think fundamentally he is a visual artist, but that can take many forms, of course, as we all know. Um, but he, that's his standpoint. And so it's fascinating that as an artist, he's looking at Lulu, who we first see in the first scene as an artist's model. Um, and it's really interesting about how he is looking at an artist creating something and the thing that they've created, how that reflects back on them, uh, and it's a, it's a sort of endless uh, prism of ideas. 
Well, one of the, the overriding impressions of the production, and not, I think, giving anything away as a spoiler, is the sense that it's a series of constant attempts to visually pin down Lulu and the world in which she lives, uh, with these constant peeling off sheets, the kind of disappearing images. It's almost as if it were a huge, great notebook, and he's turning the pages of it to try to find out what it's all about. I, I think that's exactly right. Um, I think that he is interested... Uh, when, when, when he first came to talk to us, uh, you know, first day of rehearsals, everybody sits down and you find out what the production's going to be about. Um, and he said that he was actually first asked to do Lulu by the Met, uh, and he turned it down because he didn't really see how a way into the piece. And then he'd gone away and he'd seen a lot of um, expressionist woodcuts and he suddenly thought, well, actually this is my way into this, um, and started himself dr uh, drawing and painting and trying woodcuts, and there are a few projected woodcuts you'll see um, in, in the piece. But he said that what was fascinating was that uh, brush and ink, uh, the, the speed of creating with that, um, and then being able to destroy it and recreate uh, is fascinating and was very uh, pertinent to the piece and how he regarded Lulu and how she's, uh, you know, her ephemeral nature and how she changes and, and how you can't create a single image of her and it to be a representation of her. So his idea, actually, which I find is fascinating, is that instead of having a single picture of Lulu that comes back through the piece, there is this series of sheets of paper which get thrown and destroyed and they come back over and over again and people look at these images. And in a way, it's this, uh, this early 20th century kind of cubist idea as well that you're looking at different facets of something uh, together in different ways. So it's not a single image that is Lulu. It's a, a many, many images of her. How did, how did he work with the singers? It, he was, he's a fascinating man because he is so visually involved in what goes on. I think for me, the sad thing was that it, it, this is the third time this production's been done. So it started in Amsterdam and then it went to the Met in New York and then it's come here. So in a way... This is the, the third time he's looked at it. Um, and so a lot of his decisions had already been made before he arrived with us. Um, and so you kind of, the time constraints also meant that we ended up having sometimes short ways of creating what we needed to create. Um, and he is so immersed in the piece and has, knows it so well musically and dramatically and visually um, that you could ask him a question about a certain moment. He would have a really strong idea. But when we were working through it, we sort of had to push forward very fast, didn't we, Chris? So um, it, I would like to have spent longer with him because he's a, he's a fascinating man. Did your own ideas about Lulu and the men in her life and the one woman change as you worked through the production process? I mean, was this an opera that changed for you with Kentridge? I think it, it's the first time I've worked on, on Lulu. Um, so I didn't come with any preconceived ideas about her. I'd seen a couple of um, productions before. Uh, and so, you know, I, I'm, I'm a real kind of novice at this, uh, this piece. Um, I thought it was interesting because you know I, I, you, you read the you read the sort of 
Cobby's version, and you know, you sort of get an idea of the piece uh, from one point of view. And I thought, well, yes, she's just a reflection of of these men. But I, I think, and I don't know if Maria has found that as well, working on it, that Lulu, I think, has has to discover her own autonomy with each man that, or woman that she's with. Um, and in a way that, that that reflection of her lover makes her discover a strength in herself, um, which she then pushes back against uh, the const constraints that she's, she's put under. A last question. Um, is this the most complicated show you ever had to get on stage here that you've worked on? Um, Actually, no. It's a it's a very big set on the stage, so the size of it is enormous. Um, there are obviously because of William's work uh, a lot of surfaces that we project onto, um, and also it's very multifaceted in a way, so that we get a very um, disjointed uh, images of, of of Lulu and the other things that are projected onto the set. So it's a big set, but it's not an enormously complicated set. It works with very simple elements of uh, flat surfaces or broken surfaces, some fairly simple furniture, and uh, moving screens which uh, divide the space in different ways. So size, yes, complicated, not, not enormously so. But of course, projection nowadays is so sophisticated um, that that creates a each scene has a very different feel to it because of that world that is, is projected there. Elaine, thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a little time in hand. If anyone would like to, questions of any of our guests, put your hand up and I will direct the roving microphone, which is at the back to Who would like to ask a question? One at the back, we'll start with. Thank you. Uh, thank you for all those interesting and uh, remarks on the different facets of the creation. I had one question really about the, the score itself. Um, I think Wozzeck was very heavily um, revised by Berg, and, and there's, you're very interesting about exactly what was there already and what's been completed. But do you think there's a sense that that's just gasping to get to the line or first base, and actually, had he lived a lot longer, he would have revised um, Acts 1 and 2, and, uh, as well as completing Act 3? I think... Um well, as, I, as we began our discussion, I said that Berg was very much a man of the theatre. Um, and I, I, that I, I'm slightly sort of split on this because I wouldn't want a, a single bar of Lulu to go. <laughs> but there are moments, and we discussed some of them earlier, which don't necessarily always tell in the theatre. I'm sure they will do this evening. I'm not, I'm not sort of casting aspersions before I get in there. But um, there, are, there are moments that don't have quite the ferocity and punch um, that we certainly associate with Wozzeck and certainly with, you know, definitely Act One of, um, of Lulu. I, I, I don't think Act One needs a single thing changed, but there are passages in Act Two and Three that I'm sure had Berg sat in the stalls and seen created in front of him uh, that he would, have, he would have thought of again. But that, that's to sort of imagine um, ourselves as Berg and certainly, you know, we, we know that Mahler never heard his Ninth Symphony, he never heard Das Lied von der Erde, um, Berg never heard the Violin Concerto, and they, we're perfectly happy with those as they are. Mm. So I sort of think um, we sort of need to respect it as it is as well, um, uh, and, and, and certainly a great production of Lulu um, can bring it very much alive and make it uh, a, a, well, be absolutely devastating um, when you get to the third act. There was a question also, yes, up in... Just here, hand up. Good, good. 
How does the style of the additional music required to complete the opera vary from the original? Well, I would, I think anyone would be hard pressed to work out what is Friedrich Serha and what is Alban Berg in the third act. Um, uh, Serha really did take a decade of his life mm. to immerse himself in the material that was sort of, as it were, furtively passed under a counter to him. Um, and he, and he, and he knew he knew this world very, very well. I mean, he'd been raised on it, um, and I think it would. I, I certainly can't. I don't listen to Act Three and go, "Oh, there's the there's the insert," um, and also because we're talking about such a small um, passage um, anyway that was that was, was sort of as it were invented by him, and he used material. And the very nature of the compositional process is that the material is there for the taking. Um, that I yeah, I really don't think you can you can you can hear it at all. Um, and such is the nature of the sort of musical dramaturgy of Act Three, anyway, that a lot of it is about returning forms, returning characters, returning musical forms, that actually it feels very, very homogenous. We've time for one more question. Who would like to ask the last question? This wonderful English moment when people always sit on their hands hoping the person next to them will ask the question. Yes, we've got a question. Wait for the microphone. I'd just like to ask Chris, uh, what is the significance of the pink marker lines on your score? Oh, um, this isn't actually my score. This is... Oh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> There's also yellow uh, marker lines. It's, um, there's yellow as well. It's, uh, this was Felicity Palmer. She comes in and um, does incredible work as an addiction coach. Um, that's her title, but she does so much more. She adds so much more to the production. Um, so uh, these were in the odd moments when she was twiddling her thumbs, I imagine she decided to highlight some uh, words, or maybe they're words that she couldn't understand when we were rehearsing, but uh, yeah, that's quite a lot. But um, anyway, this is her, her score and her mark. I, I love that, the <laughs> secret life of Felicity Palmer revealed <laughs> at a pre-performance talk. Um, ladies and gentlemen, some thank yous. Thank you to all of you. Um, this is our last pre-performance talk in the first half of this year's Eno season. We're back in February again with Rigoletto. And maybe under your bottoms on the seats, I'm not sure there will be brochures or maybe about telling you what dates the next... No, they're not, I'm being told. I apologise. You don't have to look at your bottom when you leave. Can I also say that there's a bar open uh, down below? It's the main bar in the circle uh, if you want a refreshment before the opera begins. But my real thanks, of course, are reserved for four remarkable guests. So I think I've given us an amazing set of insights into this market. Masterpiece. Thank you all very much indeed. Thank you.